Let's get rolling. This is our, our last of the chapters we're studying through. We've been working through this uh, Sinclair Ferguson's really helpful book, Devoted to God's Church. When we come to the last church, or the last church, the last chapter, <clears throat> entitled Home and Away. And, and the topic is, is missions. Uh, it's subtitled Christian Witness and World Missions. We're, we're going to spend the bulk of our time today in the first two-thirds of that chapter. Uh, the last third deals with world missions, which we'll, we're going we're gonna to pass over briefly today because it will be a segue into a new series we're starting next week, which will be all about world missions for, I believe it's 10 or 12 uh, lessons that we'll go through on that one. Uh, and that was actually filmed at uh, our National Association, ARPCA, uh, formerly did an annual School of World Missions. And this was part of the, the work that was done, the presentations done in that School of World Missions. So let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we, we dive in. Um, we'll be looking at First Peter briefly and making some observations from there. Father, we are grateful for your word and for your Spirit's work among us, the Spirit of the risen Christ, instructing us, uh, informing our, both our minds and shaping our hearts. Uh, we pray that as, as, as we study your word together, that you will increase our, our love and devotion to you and our love for our neighbors and even those that we, have, we don't know, uh, that name the name of Christ in other places, those who are laboring hard in the mission field, uh, those who are seeking to establish and plant churches in our own, in our own land. Uh, we pray that you would cultivate those, those desires in us to support those who are doing that work and that you would open up opportunities uh, for the, the word of Christ, the gospel of your Son, to go forth with power and effectiveness. We ask this for his name's sake. Amen. <clears throat> Dr. Ferguson opens his discussion with a couple of passages out of 1 Peter. I'm going to read them in, in reverse order um, from where he, in the same order that Peter presents them, in reverse order from uh, Dr. Ferguson's presentation. But in, in chapter 3 of, of or, I'm sorry, chapter 1 of 1 Peter, beginning in verse 3, the Word of God says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And it's really in these last two verses that we want to, to focus here 
All that Christ has done produces this effect in us. Christ is that cause, then here is the effect. Though we have not seen him, we love him. Though we have not seen him, we love him. And though we don't see him now, we believe in him and we rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving as the outcome, see that's the language of cause and effect, as the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. What, is, what is, is provocative to think about is this outward expression, this overflow of the love of Christ in us, the love of God revealed in, in Jesus Christ, and that transforming work of the triune God in his people, and it produces this effect of, of a joy of soul, an inexpressible love, and that is becomes noticeable to those around us, even when they may not be uh, explicitly aware or consciously aware that they're noticing those things in us. Then when we think about later on in Peter's epistle, and the whole context of Peter's epistle is written to people who are, who are aliens, they're sojourners, they're pilgrims, these are foreigners in a strange land, passing through, the world hates them, the world does not, does not love them, does not appreciate them, and yet the world, in a sense, is fascinated by the conduct of their lives. And in 1 Peter 3, he asks this question, who is there to harm you, in verse 13, if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear their fear, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and fear. There's a command here in verse 15, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. This is, this is, a, this is a, a conscious work of the mind to set apart Christ as holy to recognize he is Lord, he is is sovereign, he is supreme, and all that we do, all that we are. And then it describes, what does this look like? Always ready to make a defense, uh, to give an apologia, to give an apologetic, to give a reasoned defense for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and fear. Dr. Ferguson points out something that's very interesting. So there's an interesting difference between Peter's manual for witnessing to Christ and its modern counterparts. You know, and you've you've seen this, and he references in in his chapter that there are a number of of various programs. He spells program wrong, by the way. But there are various programs. There are various um, methodologies for witnessing. And and most of those that we see in evangelicalism are, are are very outwardly driven, and sometimes even bordering on the silly or the trite. But he says there's, there's a difference here between what Peter presents to us as a manual and a means of witnessing for Christ and what we, we find in many modern counterparts. He says modern manuals generally assume that we need to learn how to open up, quote, gospel conversations with non-Christians. Sometimes, Groups of Christians have resorted to asking people to respond to a questionnaire in the hope of promoting questions and conversations about Christ. 
Peter does not take that approach. Indeed, he does not really share the same assumptions. He assumes that non-Christians will be the one who ask questions of Christians. Indeed, he seems to assume this is inevitable. Therein lies the difference. How so? Is this significant? The answer is almost certainly. So there's, there's, a, there's a complete shift in paradigm, isn't there? Rather than, than the people of God sort of inventing questions to ask of our unbelieving neighbors, the assumption in Peter's writing is that the reverse will be true. Our unbelieving neighbors will seek us out and ask us questions. Now, what's the basis for Peter thinking in this way? Why does Peter assume this is, is the case? Because of, in short order, because of the, the transformed lives of Christian people and because of the way we conduct ourselves, to use Peter's language, among the Gentiles. So what makes Christians? This is what this is um, Dr. Ferguson's first point. What makes non-Christians ask questions? He says, what then had non-Christians noticed? It was the hope of faithful Christians. That is, their assurance of salvation in Christ and the joy it created. In the midst of all kinds of difficulties that we, we all face, the difficulties are common to man. The kinds of struggles that, that whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you have, you have difficulties with your extended family. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you have difficulties in your workplace. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you experience death and loss. Whether you are a Christian or not a Christian, you, you have opportunity to have conflicts with your neighbors. What's the difference? How is it that the non-Christians are able to see something Something to, from their perspective, maybe even intangible, into their Christian neighbors, and they say, "Why is that guy responding the way he does?" Or maybe better, why does he not respond in the same way that I'm responding? What's different here? What's going on here? Ferguson says they knew God. Doubtless, this was expressed quietly in some of them and more exuberantly in others. But their new sense of purpose, their remarkable peace, could not be hidden. Now, isn't this exactly what our Lord Jesus said? You are the light of the world. Who lights a lamp and then puts it under a blanket? Or who puts it under a basket? That, that defeats the whole purpose. The hope of which Peter writes, continues Ferguson, was not mere wishful thinking, but a strong assurance of God's grace. This can never be hidden. Even when Christians are not conscious that they are expressing it, non-Christians have no explanation for what they were seeing. And I recall as, as a young man, I, I, I professed Christ, but I had a very moralistic understanding of, of the gospel. I, I didn't know Christ. I was outside of the kingdom of God. And I went to work for a company that was owned by a Christian man, and one of the, the things that this company wished to do was a Bible study uh, every Monday morning for their employees. And so there was, there was some instruction, which was profitable to me. And, and also, as I worked with these men, as I rode along in the car with them, and, and I would see when the phone would ring and, and their, their wife would be on the phone, and I would hear how they spoke to their wives. And then they would hang up, and I would hear how, they, how gently and kindly they spoke about their wives. And, and from the industry that I had come from, that was strange and foreign to me. 
And for a man to speak graciously and gently and tenderly to his wife and then about her, uh, to, to treat customers in, in a God-honoring way, to see the, the fruit of the gospel in their lives drew me because I saw that what, they were, what we were learning together on a Monday morning, sitting around a conference table, was actually producing fruit. And these, these men, imperfectly, but were seeking to live these things out. And as an unbeliever, it drew me in to the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we think about our unbelieving neighbors, and we think as, as, as the culture grows increasingly dark around us, as, as it were, the light of, of God's common grace dims in a culture because of God's chastising judgment, those who are in Christ, those who are walking faithfully, imperfectly, but faithfully, will shine all the brighter. We have a culture that's increasingly desperate for truth, a culture that's increasingly disordered, a culture that's increasingly uh, has has a a lack of any kind of of grounding and and roots in truth, even a denial that truth exists. And so when Christians come along and walk humbly before their God and, and love their neighbor in very simple but profound ways, it can be shocking Ferguson goes on to say, our friendships and marriages, our homes and families are something of a puzzle to them, to unbelievers. There is something there they simply cannot work out. And as a consequence, they ask questions. Sometimes those questions will come uh, in their own minds first before they ever ask us. Sometimes those questions, and you've seen this, will kind of take the form of, of criticism. Why do you do that? Why are you like that? But rather than being defensive, let's, let's, let's work through what the Scriptures tell us, that these are legitimate questions, maybe posed in immature ways or antagonistic ways, but they're legitimate questions. Why do you do that? Or why do you not do that? And we ought to take those questions seriously. In Titus chapter 2, <clears throat> this is precisely what, what Paul is teaching his young protege, He's showing him that, that all the, in chapter 1, he, he spells out some of the difficulties in Crete, and it was, Paul says, you know, there's rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those among the circumcision. They're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of dishonest gain. He even quotes one of their own, says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And Paul says, you know what? It's true. It's true. It's a mess. And he begins chapter 2 with, but as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. And then he, he speaks intentionally, to, in a sense, to all four corners of the congregation, older men, older women, younger men, younger women. He says, Titus, teach them according to God's word that the gospel would bear fruit. But then look down at verse 11 of Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. There, there is, there is a, there's a, there's a, an effect 
of the gospel in the hearts of God's people that, that produces a sound testimony before the world. It produces in us a hope that is visible to the world around us. He gives an illustration I thought was, was, was clever and helpful. He talks about being from Scotland and, and coming to the United States and having this Scottish accent of people coming up to him and saying, I know you're not from here. That's obvious by your accent. But they, they confuse where he's from. And he draws a, an illustration here. He says, one well-known difference between the way Scots and Americans speak, even though the same language is being used, is that the accent is sometimes placed on a different syllable. As Bodhi would say, the emphasis is on a different syllable. Sometimes the spelling may be slightly different. Just enough for haughty people from the United Kingdom to complain that Americans don't spell some English words properly. Same word, different accent, or different spellings, but the difference tends to stick out. You cannot but notice it. This is what the New Testament is telling us about Christians and their witness. Our accent is different. We spell out the story of our lives differently. Even though we live in the same world and it prompts non-Christians to wonder, where is he from? I think it's a great illustration. But there's a second, there's a second observation. Not only do we ask this question, what what makes non-Christians approach us and ask us, where are you from? Or who are you? Or why do you speak that way? But also, we, we have an answer. We're called to give an answer to this question. So it's not enough that we, we live in such a way that people will come and ask questions and we just say, I don't know. I, I don't know. We, we, we have an answer. And our answer takes two forms. One is, is our words. Now, I'm not, and, and, and Ferguson is not. You know, there's the, the famous quote from, I think it was Francis of Assisi, that says, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. Well, that's rubbish. Uh, the gospel is a, is a proclamation of words. It, it, it is a declaration of God's work in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So it is not that we, we are... Uh, preaching the gospel only with our actions. But it is the fact that our, our words are adorned by and supplemented by the way we conduct our lives. So our answer first is in our words. Peter urges Christian brothers and sisters, back to 1 Peter 3, to be ready, be prepared to make a defense. Now I think there's something that's very noteworthy. We've seen a lot in, in the last oh, 100, 150 years in the area of, of Christian apologetics. And, and often this takes the form of, um, in, in particularly in more, in more recent decades, uh, creationism, uh, creation science, um, looking at the, trying to prove the historicity of the Bible, and all those are fine and good, but that's not what Peter's talking about here. When Peter says, give a hope, give a reason for the hope that is in you, he's not saying, can you give a rebuttal to carbon dating? He's not saying, can you, can you give an affirmative defense for the historicity of the flood, of a worldwide flood? Now, all of those are encouraging things, and they, they all do point to the veracity of the Scriptures. But note carefully what Peter says. 
Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense of a particular thing. To make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is within you. That's the defense. That's the apologia. That's the apologetic for which we are called to be ready to make. It is not generally... The, the, the historical facts of, of, our, of our faith, those, are, those are, are, are right and good for us to know. But specifically, Peter's saying, can you recount the gospel? Can, can you testify what God's work of grace has done in you? Can, can you testify according to the scriptures, this is what God has promised to do for anyone who will believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. So with our words, Ferguson says, we engage in apologetics whenever we give a reasoned explanation for our faith. We are to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about Christ and the Christian faith. Peter tells us that we must always be ready to do this. Sometimes we can burden ourselves unnecessarily in this area of apologetics, thinking we've got to be uh, we, we've got to be chemists and geologists and astrologers and astronomers and all these other things when that's not, if, if, you, if God in his providence has made you an astronomer, praise the Lord for that. Do good work as an astronomer. If he's made you a chemist, a biologist, great. But he's not called all of us to be experts in those fields. That's not the apologetics to which every believer is called. So there's a second part of our answer, not only in our words, but in our actions. Christian witness needs to be expressed in our lifestyle. He expresses to us that we, Peter commands, that as, as we're sanctifying Christ in our hearts, as we are expressing a readiness to make a defense, he says here, even then, yet with gentleness and fear, with a gentleness and a respect. And, and we've talked about this before. If, if, if we have... If we have the authority of God's word on our side, we don't have to be loud. We don't have to be antagonistic personally. We don't have to be uh, a jerk in order to get our point across. We just simply whisper, this is what God has said. Bow to him or perish in your sin. And we can say that with a smile on our face and in our voice, on 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 our mouths. He says, Ferguson says, this cannot be emphasized too strongly. How much damage has been done by people whose lives contradicted their Christian profession? How much blessing has been brought by Christians whose lives have shown with gospel beauty? And, and I'm sure you've, you've seen this in the marketplace. I almost, I almost cringe now when I see it, when I see a, a, a work van driving down the highway and it's, and it's got a, a Bible verse on it, or it's got a fish somewhere or it's got those it's these Jesus as a marketing ploy and I cringe um, I, I'm hopeful that this is a, a faithful tradesman this is a faithful employer uh, a, a faithful workman but we've all seen how often that's not the case and it, it is it is a it is a blasphemy it really is it, it, it is a um, it is an reproach to the reputation of Christ when, when we, in a sense, market ourselves as Christian business people and then live in ways and do business in ways that are contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
how much harm is done? Um, how, how much, what a, what a bad taste in the mouth it is. I remember being a young man, again, I was, was I would have professed Christ, but I was in a season of, of utter rebellion. I worked for a restaurant, a Mexican restaurant in Mesquite, Texas. Mesquite in the, you know, kind of a thought of itself as, as one of the chief outposts in the Bible Belt. And no one liked to work on Sundays. As, as, as waiters and waitresses, no one wanted to work on Sundays. You know why? Because all the Christians came after church and the tips were lousy. It was the worst day to work. Unless, and no one, unless you worked in the smoking section. The smoking section was profitable on Sunday because that's where the drinkers were. It weren't the Christians there, it was the drinkers on Sunday. Because of Mesquite, the Christians weren't drinkers. So it was, you had, to, you had that section of the restaurant, people would rather go home smelling like an ashtray and make some money and not deal with Christians on that day. What a reproach. What a reproach upon the name of Christ. And yet that was, that's the, was the reputation among probably 100% unbelieving restaurants. And it was a justly earned reputation. So how do we think about those things? I think the answer is not to say, well, I'm not going to let people know that I'm a Christian in the business world. The answer is, I want to, by God's help, live out my faith in a way that honors Christ. And be consistent. Um, and that, that means when I have erred, when, I have, when I've made a mistake, when my work has not been up to the standard that I know it ought to be, I make it right. I admit that and, and seek to live in that pattern of, of forgiveness, of humility, of reconciliation to which the Scriptures call us. Ferguson says this, is, this, this whole ethos is what we want to see in the churches to which we belong. We want to see this, this cultivated and encouraged and, and exhorted one to another within the body of Christ. And when we think about this, 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 um, this way of thinking about evangelism, thinking about evangelism as starting with what do we believe and being certain of that, exhorting one another in the truth of what we believe, and secondly, exhorting one another to live out lives that are consistent with that, encouraging one another, even even admonishing and rebuking one another when that doesn't happen. And he says this point underlines a feature of the New Testament church we have already considered, the tendency to individualize and privatize our evangelism. So much so that it's often referred to as personal evangelism. It's frequently overstated fact that in the New Testament, the second person pronoun, you, is characteristically plural and not singular. But while what is written is you, plural, we could say y'all, what is usually heard is you, singular. Because the Bible really is all about me, right? The Bible is really all about you, right? I say that with my tongue firmly planted in my cheek. You can hear that sarcasm, right? Thus, exhortations, Ferguson continues to the community, are truncated as though they are addressed only to individuals. The church needs to hear these exhortations as addressed to each and all of us as a fellowship. It is as the church family that we are called to be a witness to Christ. 
We are a city set on a hill. We are to be salt together, not single grains. Evangelism, therefore, needs to be seen as a corporate activity in which each member of the entire church family has a role to play. You know, in 1 Corinthians, Paul works out this just amazing metaphor. He talks about the body. And he talks about the body having all different parts. And there are, there are uh, more honorable parts and, and less honorable parts. And those less honorable parts are actually given greater honor because their weaknesses are covered over. And he, and he says, we, we, the mouth wouldn't say to the eye, I don't need you. The, the, the nose, and I'm, I'm stretching Paul's metaphor, but the nose couldn't say to the big toe, I don't have any use for you at all. Because the body, is, it function, all the parts function together to make a whole. And the body of Christ is that way. So we think about the Great Commission. When, when Christ declares, right as he's, right before he's taken up into the clouds, right before he ascends to heaven, he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, basically go in my name, under my authorities, literally, having been sent, therefore, make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And we think about that. We, we, sometimes that, even the Great Commission, we assume that's given to every man, woman, and child. No, it's given to the church. It's given to the church corporate. So there are all different roles. You know, and, and uh, you've heard me say this. I think the, the Apostle Paul sanctified the use of sports metaphors. So the ob- objective in a, in a football team is to get the ball to the other end of the field and across the goal line. Well, some are going to pass it, some are going to throw it, some are going to block, some will never touch the ball, ever, unless unless there's a mistake and they jump on it, and yet they're part of a team. They all have a role to play. They know very well, this is based on, on how I am, physically, how I'm made, this is my role, you know, the guy that's six foot and 350 pounds is probably not going to be your wide receiver. It's probably not. But likewise, the guy who's five foot ten and 190 pounds is probably not going to be your left tackle. Everyone has a role to play. And, and in the world of athletics, that's, that's viewed as normal. There's a team. The same would work. You use the same imagery, and Paul does. Use the imagery of military service. There are different roles to play. Not everybody has the same function, but everybody's part of the same mission. That's the idea here with evangelism. Individually, we are to live our lives in such a way that our neighbors may ask us, why are you like the way you are? Why why are you, why is there an abiding joy in you even though everything around us seems to be falling apart? Why Why is there a contentment? Why is there a calm in you? that's different from everybody else here in the workplace or everybody else here in our family or everybody else here in the neighborhood. And at the same time, we recognize that the the primary thrust of the Great Commission is worked out through the body of Christ, through the planting of other churches. And we'll see this more again. The the last third of the chapter deals primarily with with missions, uh, both local and foreign. And we'll, we'll spend the next several weeks working through this, this, the biblical doctrine of world missions and church planting. So I'm not going to belabor uh, that point today, but I want to open this up to, to questions. We think about evangelism. We think about 
this concept of personal evangelism, which is sort of assumed. And I get questions from time to time in the membership process. And I'm like, well, what, what, what is the church's um, you know, program for personal evangelism? We don't have one on purpose. It's not because we're opposed to personal evangelism. But it is, it's the idea of, I think Peter's uh, presentation of this is, is consistent with what we have in the rest of the scriptures. It is, a, it is a Christian witness, a personal witness to what Christ has done and what Christ has promised to do to all who will believe. But not everyone, to use Paul's image of the body, not everyone is a mouth, not everyone is an ear, not everyone's a foot. Um, we, we all have a job to do corporately, which, which brings us back to a, uh, not only a, a, a togetherness and a mutual um, accountability, but a mutual need. We need one another. For the sake of the gospel, we need one another. If we desire to see the gospel go forth to the rest of Montgomery County or to the far reaches of the world, we need each other, don't we? And, and, and once again, um, I've, as I've meditated upon this, this lesson this week and also the, the, the text in Colossians chapter 4, verses 15 to 17, and the idea of churches cooperating together. So even not only do we cooperate as individual members within this local body for the sake of the, of the advancement of the gospel, but we want to see other churches cooperating together for the sake of that same gospel. Our, um, our effectiveness can, can be greatly enhanced as, as we rejoice in the gifts that God has given among us and also among our sister churches. Questions or comments? Andrew? Because it's exceptional. You suddenly those those roles that you thought were less significant suddenly become very significant when they're <laughs> when they're poorly poorly filled. Matthew, you...
Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, the, 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 you know, the young mom with, with three kids hanging off of her in the grocery line is guilted because she wasn't doing evangelism with the, ch- with the, with the teller, and, and she's just trying to get her kids safely back to the car and, and those kinds of things. Again, as God gives us opportunity, we want to be ready for those. Um, but to put a, a weight on, on individual believers that the, that the Scriptures do not, uh, we, we, sh- we should not... S- Put a, a must or an ought where the Bible doesn't. Um, thinking back, when you, Matthew, something you said that the this COVID was ultimately a, a spiritual pandemic. Um, I think there's 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 a lot of, of truth in that, and in one way, it revealed a spiritual pandemic that was already there, and and COVID was the occasion of of showing. The, the, the faults and cracks in the foundation that were already present. In 1 Peter 4, in verse 12, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening. You know, isn't that profound? When, when, when things get tough, don't look at this like this is some strange experience. This is what we would call normal in the Christian life. Verse 13, he says, But to the degree you are sharing the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be put to shame, but is to glorify God in his name. For it is time for the judgment to begin with the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God must entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing good. You know, that's, that's our witness. That not, not if trouble comes, when trouble comes. Where is our hope? Where is our trust? And can we, are we able to bear witness to that? Now, with our words, but also does our life 
so lifestyle bear witness to the fact that our trust really is truly in Christ. We can say with our mouths, I trust the Lord. And then our actions say we're trusting something else entirely. Um, our, our lifestyle just sort of screams out that no, your trust is not in Christ. It's in something else entirely or someone else entirely. Anything else, guys? Well, the substance of the, the, the word faith movement is that if, if something is wrong, it's abnormal. If, if, there's, if there's a trial, it's because you didn't have enough faith. If you're sick, it's because you didn't have enough faith. If you're, if you're broke, it's because you didn't have enough faith. If you've got a relationship problem, it's because you didn't have enough faith. It's, it's, those are seen as abnormal realities when Peter says 180 degrees the opposite. This is what we call normal in the Christian life is for difficulties to come and that we ought not be surprised. When difficulties come. Man is exalted. Mm-hmm.
Yeah. And, and and the same would be said in any other relationship that we have, right? You, you work hard in your in your in your in the marketplace to honor God, and whatever fruit God gives to you is is a result of of that, as a result of His His kindness. And, and whether that fruit is in your own financial remuneration or or in the opportunities you have uh, to share with your coworkers, yeah, Matthew. feel something yeah amen well let's close there I'll, I'll pray and close us out and we'll we'll resume together and worship here in about 12 minutes father you are so good to us uh, we praise you for your word which is uh, our fixed immovable infallible point of reference I thank you for the way that you correct us Thank you for the way that your word confronts our flesh, uh, confronts the, the ideas that we have developed over time or sort of just absorbed from the world around us and, and maybe not even aware of it. Uh, thank you for the, the work of correcting and admonishing us. Thank you for the work that your spirit does through your word of, of teaching us sound truth. Uh, we pray that, that you will create in us uh, an eagerness, a zeal, uh, to see our neighbors come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for Christ's sake and also for the good of our neighbors. And we pray that we, that we would long to see your church full, to see new churches established, to see old churches uh, reformed, uh, to see people across uh, our county, across our world, come to faith in your Son. We ask this for his sake and for the good of all those who believe. Amen.